0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe
1: McCormick, and it's Saturday. Time for a Vault episode, folks. This one is from March 4th, 2021, and this is the one we did on Fata Morgana. This is a type of optical phenomenon uh, that uh, has caused people to report all kinds of strange sights throughout the years, phantom islands, uh, castles floating in the sky, and and sea monsters and things. This one was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, this is probably one of my favorite uh, episodes that we did in 2021. Okay, downloading into your brain now.
1: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Land and I'm Joe McCormick and you know we
1: just came off of doing a couple of episodes about the artistic convention of the halo and how that uh comes through in in various different religious concepts and how it might be related to uh, optical phenomena that are sometimes observed in the sky, like uh, like solar halos or sun dogs. And jumping off of that, we wanted to hop over to explore another theme today that's sort of in the same wheelhouse, not quite halos, but an optical phenomenon that has some connection to legendary accounts and myths. And so I thought a great place to start today to get us in the mood would be a reading from The Rime of the Ancient Mariner by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Uh, Now, I think this is going to be probably, what would you guess, Rob, like the seventh time we've quoted this poem on the show, always introducing a different type of subject matter. It seems to go off in a lot of great directions.
0: Well, you know, it's a it's a long work and it it has a lot of cool things happening in it It has a great story and just an infectious uh, cadence. You know, it just gets gets into your brain.
1: Right. Uh, so in this poem, the narrator
0: here—I guess this
1: is a narration within a narration. So this guy gets accosted by a, an ancient graybeard. He says, "Like unhand me, graybeard loon!" But then the graybeard loon starts telling his story, and and his story is, of course, one of, of terror and tragedy on the high seas. He he tells that he was once out on a ship, and I think they'd been sailing around in the South Seas, and uh, he somehow brings a curse upon his ship and its crew by shooting an albatross out of the sky with an. And after this, their ship falls into unnatural doldrums in the equatorial regions. There are no winds for it to sail. So it's just sitting there in the water and, and the mariner and the rest of the crew are dying of thirst without fresh water.
0: Yeah, and uh, it's one thing that's, I guess worth noting about this. You know, we been talking about the, the the ships at sea in these days and superstition among the um, among the crew is that on one hand, uh, absolutely the the best science and navigation of the day was utilized uh, to uh, to get where you're going and to survive on the open seas. But the crew was often held together by uh, by also this this tenuous web of superstitions, mm-hmm. and uh, you you read about some of them, and it, it, at times it seems like it would not take much to shift things into the realm of, uh, of of you know dire omens.
1: Well, sailing vessels really are at the at the mercy of forces beyond your control. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot you can do to design a ship well and work hard to you know, do everything you can to get where you're going, but you're still at the mercy of the seas and the weather. And that can make it feel very much like you are a sinner in the hands of an angry God.
0: Yep. Sailing beneath this uh, uncertain sky and uh, atop this just dark, unfathomable ocean. Right, so in the context of the part of the poem we're about to
1: read, so the curse has already come upon them, they're out there dying, you know, you get to the part about water, water everywhere, and not a drop to drink, they're all parched and thirsty, and the boat is just floating around in the doldrums, and then the mariner sees something horrible. So I'm going to read this first bit here, and then Rob, I I don't think I can do a sailor voice, but I hope you can do a (laughs) sailor voice for your part. I'll try. Okay, so the mariner says... passed a weary time each throat was parched and glazed each eye a weary time a weary time how glazed each weary eye when looking westward i beheld a something in the sky at first it seemed a little speck And then it seemed a mist. It moved and moved, and took at last a certain shape I wist, A speck, a mist, a shape I whist. And still it neared and neared, as if it dodged a water sprite. It plunged and tacked and veered. With throats unslaked, with black lips baked, we could not laugh nor wail. Through utter drought all dumb we stood. I bit my arm, I sucked the blood, and
0: cried, A sail, a sail! The western wave was all aflame, the day was well nigh done. Almost upon the western wave rested the broad bright sun, when that strange shape dove suddenly betwixt us and the sun. And straight the sun was flecked with bars, Heaven's mother send us grace as if through a dungeon grate he peered with broad and burning face. Alas, thought I, and my heart beat loud, how fast she nears and nears. Are those her sails that glance in the sun like restless gossamers?
1: Rob, I give that four R's.
0: (laughs) Why, Why, thank you.
1: Uh, so, yeah, so he sees something approaching. They see a, a weird a spectral type of ship coming close. And when this phantom ship gets up close to them, they see the figures of death and life in death. I think represented as like a skeleton and then like a pale naked body casting lots to claim the fate of the sailors. This creepy stuff. Yeah, also, it is. Also a great couple's Halloween costume to keep in mind. <laughs> right. Death and life in death. Mm-hmm. I call life in death.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh so these passages from the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner uh it, it's not known for sure but they may well have been influenced by The Legend of the Flying Dutchman, a set of related folktales shared by the seafaring people of Europe at least as far back as the 18th century, probably earlier. And usually the way this legend goes is that there is some kind of spectral ship, a, a ghost vessel that's doomed to sail the globe in a terrible limbo, forever circling the seas and never allowed to come into port. Often it's regarded as an omen of disaster. If a sailor sees the Flying Dutchman, he knows he's going to die in a shipwreck.
0: Yeah, like this is one of the big ones. uh, You know, as opposed to you know things like say killing a. I mean, I mean certainly killing an albatross clearly can be a a big deal. You know, not touching the horseshoe uh, nailed to the mast. You know, things like that. Uh, But to see the Flying Dutchman, like all is lost. Uh, in some versions, even worse than seeing it is
1: that sometimes the ship will come up next to you and the doomed crew will try to hand off letters for you to give to their loved ones because, you know, mm. they can't call to port to send the letters themselves. And you are not supposed to accept these letters. You you say, sorry, I, I can't.
0: I can't do it. Oh, man, that's so creepy. That That totally holds up.
1: Now, there are a number of popular stories explaining the origin of the Flying Dutchman. I think the belief itself goes back farther than any of these like written versions of the stories. But in one version, there's a captain named Vanderdecken, or sometimes just the Dutchman, who's on a sea voyage home from Batavia, which is in present-day Indonesia around the area of Jakarta. But at the the time would have been in the, the Dutch East Indies. And he's traveling from Batavia, trying to go back around the southern tip of Africa to a place called Table Bay. And so he's trying to to round the Cape of Good Hope, but his ship falls under a terrible squall. And in defiance of God, he swears a brazen oath that he will round the Cape of Good Hope despite the storm, even if it takes him until Armageddon to do it. And as this oath leaves his lips, the ship sinks. Uh, but before it does, the devil hears Vanderdecken's Decken's promise and he holds him to it. And this turns the, the Dutchman and the ghost of his vessel into a kind of wraith of the seas. And they sail forever between life and death without rest until he can reach his destination. Uh, this version is the subject of an opera by Wagner. And I think in that version, he actually can go to land once every 7 years so that he can try to find the true love that will break
0: the curse hmm. uh, and presumably
1: uh, stop at white castle or something <laughs>
0: This sounds, this sounds like a great setup for uh, like a modern horror film or maybe not a modern one, but at least like a 1970s film, you know, or mm-hmm. like it could have been a hammer horror film. You could have have uh, Vander Decken as your sort of Dracula-esque ghostly uh, sailor chap that has come on shore to seduce a, 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 a hapless woman that, that has no idea that this attractive man is actually the captain of a damn ship. Oh, I mean that's a
1: great sort of variation on Dracula, right? The yeah. more seductive versions of Dracula, where mm-hmm. uh, where you know he he falls in love with a woman and he's like, "You can be with me, you can, we can live forever," but she doesn't realize that that involves being damned along with him. Yeah, should have been Christopher Lee.
0: Yeah, he would have he would have, he would have made a good Van der for sure.
1: Uh, But the story – this version of the story was, I think, very strong around the area of the South Seas and the southern tip of Africa. But there's another common version that takes place in the North Sea, and this is a captain named Herr von Falkenberg – who sails without rest around the North Sea while playing dice with Satan for the possession of his soul. And the part about playing dice with the devil for, for his soul, that recalls very much what happens in the rhyme of the Ancient Mariner right after the part we read. Because remember, uh, death and life and death are gambling for the souls of the crew. Yeah. But there are a lot of other variations on the story with a good deal of elasticity. It is not known for sure exactly where the legend comes from originally. I think I've read some speculation that it could have to do with a Norse legend about a sailor who encounters a kind of uh, damned limbo fate. But records of this story go at least as far back as the late 1700s. I found one early reference to it from the memoirs of a Scottish man named John MacDonald who lived 1741 to 1796. And in writing about one of his sea voyages, he writes, quote, The weather was so stormy that the sailors said they saw the flying Dutchman. The common story is that this Dutchman came to the Cape in distress of weather and wanted to get into harbor but could not get a pilot to conduct her and was lost, and that ever since, in very bad weather, her vision appears. Now, in some versions of the story, I think the ship is even more uh, spectral, even more of just a clear apparition, something that is on the horizon and with a kind of like ghostly silhouette or even appears over the horizon. I think it's not exactly clear in the version of The rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, whether the ship is said to be approaching on the water or when they first see it, it's above the water. He he does say that he looked and he beheld something in the sky that at first looked like a, looks like a speck, and then later he realizes it's a ship coming toward them. Uh, and I guess there are a couple of ways you could read that. Uh, I, I know I've always read that as he originally saw the ship flying in the sky. I guess you could also read it as... They see the ship on the water, and he, what he's seeing is the sails poking up over the horizon in the sky. Mm-hmm. Uh, but either way, I think there are some versions where there's a kind of ghost ship that isn't
0: necessarily even confined to the water, like it flies. Yeah, yeah, a, a true flying flying Dutchman, yeah. And of course, this is going to lead us into what what we're really talking about here today, a, a very particular type of, of optical phenomena. Uh, that may be responsible, at least in part for legends like this. Though, of course, it's always worth remembering that you know, anything like this, like the Flying Dutchman, for example, in all likelihood, we're dealing with a story that has multiple converging origins. To what extent they are based on things that people really saw, they were likely different things, you know, like mm-hmm. somebody staring into a dark night on a ship, somebody seeing an optical phenomenon on the uh, horizon, or somebody, you know, looking into the chaos of a storm and momentarily making out some shape in the the, the flash of lightning. Right. But there
1: are some uh, well-known optical phenomena that fit with some of these accounts so closely that you have to assume at least some of these accounts probably are based on the thing we're going to be talking about today, which is known as the Superior Mirage or a variation of Superior Mirage known as the Fata Morgana. Um, now, the, one thing that will tie into this before we explain the, the Superior Mirage and the Fata Morgana, something I noticed that was kind of interesting about the Flying Dutchman accounts, a lot of these accounts seem concentrated toward the polar regions rather than the equatorial ones. Uh, the ghost ship usually seems to be sailing either the North Seas or the South Seas more so than anywhere in between.
0: Yeah, yeah, quite interesting. So keep keep that in mind as we proceed here. So yeah, basically from here we're going to talk about the mirage itself and mirages in general. But then we'll get back into some more examples of of various folk tales and myths that uh, seem to be or perhaps are inspired by Fata Morgana sightings. So let's start by talking about the mirage itself. A mirage in general is an optical effect. That is sometimes seen at sea or in the desert or over hot pavement. And in some cases, these may take on the appearance of, say, a pool of water or a mirror surface. And this can cause distant objects to appear inverted. Uh, now, Now, to be clear on the language here, you do find the word mirage sometimes used interchangeably with the notion of an illusion.
1: Right. And a allu- is something that you're seeing but is not there. So, in common language, it's sometimes conflated with even like the idea of a hallucination. You know, somebody's right. just seeing something like it's real in their perception, but there is not an external reality to it. And that's not the case with the technical meaning of a mirage.
0: Right. And I feel like this is also uh, you know, this is also complicated because a lot of us grew up watching especially cartoons that would occasionally have a mirage uh, scene. And those would be a bit confusing because a lot of times I feel like they would play it up like just something magical that you you only saw because you were you were thirsty and dying and you were also a cartoon dog.
1: Right. Well, in cartoons, I feel like the mirage is always shown in the desert rather than say over an ice sheet or on the seas. Uh, and, and that over the desert, you were probably looking at a particular type of mirage, the inferior mirage. We'll get into more of the distinctions mm-hmm. there in just a minute. But yeah, in the cartoons, it's always like, I don't know, the you know, Daffy Duck is seeing a mirage in the desert and it's like an ice cream stand or something. Right. It's yeah, something some variation
0: of the oasis in the desert, yeah. Right.
1: It's something very specific that gives the suggestion that you're seeing like a complicated, detailed hallucination. Right.
0: But in reality, the the sort of mirage, the specific mirage that we're talking about here. This is an optical effect that is visible to all. Like if there is a mirage, if you're in a party of, say, you know, five people in the desert or on a ship, wherever, if you see a mirage in the distance, everyone with you, you know, assuming they have the same uh, sight capacity that you have, they Mm. will be able to see the mirage as well. And assuming they're looking from the same place also. Right, right. Yeah, you got to have the same vantage point for sure. but, uh, you know, now that's not also not to say that, you know, this could not be further distorted by the individual, either visually or in memory, uh, but it is a thing that you could, and people can and do capture photographically or on, uh, you know, or with a, like a video camera. So it is, it is not something you're seeing that isn't there. It is an actual optical phenomenon.
1: Right. Uh, you, you are seeing something that is really light coming into your eyes looking that way. It's not in your head, though what you're seeing is very distorted.
0: So you're probably wondering, OK, mirage. How does a mirage happen? Uh, it's you know, not caused by you know, uh, you know, weird spirits in the, uh, you know, in the desert or on the seas. Well, mirages in general occur when light passes through air of differing temperatures. And the light is reflected or refracted, a.k.a. bent. And there are two types of mirages. Uh, We can divide them up generally into inferior mirages and superior mirages. This is not about their quality. It's not like, you know, um, discount mirages and bespoke (laughs) mirages. Uh, It has to do with uh, where they fall uh, in relation to the horizon. Right. So the inferior
1: mirage is the kind that is being lampooned in the cartoons where a character is, you know, Daffy Duck's in the desert and he thinks he sees an oasis. This is a very real thing that people often experience in desert climates. And this is the inferior mirage.
0: Yeah. So the inferior mirage again is your stereotypical oasis mirage. Uh, it looks like a pool of blue water sometimes, uh, you know, appears when you also look out across, uh, the desert or down a highway. You've probably seen one of these on your own drives or in movies, especially in movies that have a desert highway. This is, this is like catnip to directors. They, they gotta have it, you know, so they'll, they'll get a little bit of that mirage in their, uh, in their shot. Right. And it's not only
1: because the desert is hot and you're thirsty that it looks like there's water on the desert. There is a specific uh, climate related reason that you're likely to see a mirage in the desert that looks like a pool of water.
0: Yeah. These occur when a dense layer of cold air sits on or above line of sight with a layer of less dense, warmer air below line of sight. Now, um, an example to to, to pull from here is uh, consider the desert highway. Okay, the sun beats down, heats the asphalt, and the hot asphalt heats up the bottom portion of the air. Rays of light from above are refracted when they hit that. Refracted toward your eyes, resulting in the mirage. So the light of the blue sky above is bent back towards you from below the horizon. And thus you have this, you know, it's, it's like a pool of water, but essentially like what seems like a pool of sky.
1: Yeah, you're essentially seeing the blue light of the sky that is refracted as it changes from the the cooler air above to this pocket of warmer air below. And it bends down and makes it look like part of the sky is just sitting on the ground. And when
0: you see that, that
1: blue sky looks a lot like water.
0: Yeah. Now, the superior mirage works the opposite way. Warm air sits above line of sight, cool uh, layer beneath it. Light bends down. Uh, the light is not traveling straight at us, uh, but our visual process assumes that it is. So it makes it appear as if it is uh, a, it is above its actual position, such as above the horizon hanging in the sky.
1: And so, of course, in some cases, this can cause objects that are actually Past where you can see on the horizon, so they're you know beyond the curve of the Earth from your vision to appear as if they are popping up over the horizon.
0: Yeah, they can make something that's that's actually just beyond the optical horizon, such as mountain tops, appear ahead of schedule. You can imagine how this would play into uh, some of your expectations whilst whilst uh, out on the uh, the open seas. Uh, it can also make objects appear closer or further away, larger or smaller than they actually are. Um, it's quite interesting. Uh, and, and, and for a, another example of this, apparently the most common example of a superior mirage, according to Christine uh, Palam in 2008, speaking to Robert Siegel of NPR, uh, is a sunrise or a sunset. Quote, the same phenomenon occurs to the sun every day and makes it appear to be above the horizon when it's actually slightly below it.
1: Oh, I think I've read that this is even more common, like in polar regions. This might be related to what's known as the Novaya Zemlia effect.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. It's of course it, the thing with the the sunrise and sunset is since it happens every day and and you know generally it's the kind of thing you see every day it doesn't seem out of place mm-hmm. but where where we get into these uh you know remarkable stories and legends arising from uh, uh from uh, sightings of uh, of superior mirages it's because they occur they don't occur every day it's something you would see uh maybe with some frequency depending on what part of the world and what the exact environmental settings happen to be but they they have more mystery to them they're not part of just the everyday movements of the sun or everyday atmospheric behavior
1: Yeah, the conditions have to be right. Uh, So superior mirages, they require there to be a certain kind of pocket of warmer air sitting above a pocket of cooler air, which is not normally how the atmosphere works, right? Usually the air up higher is going to be cooler, even though heat rises, usually it's just farther away from the earth and it's going to be cooler.
0: Now, if you're completely lost at this point, which I will I will forgive you for, for being so, um, I will say a couple of resources you can turn to. Uh, HowStuffWorks.com has an article about mirages, but also the University of British Columbia's Department of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences. They have a great page uh, that I was looking at earlier with very helpful illustrations. Uh, I included one of these for you to see here, Joe, but uh, just very well presented information about like light bending downward That's your superior mirage, light bending upward. That's your inferior mirage.
1: Now, the superior mirage can actually get even more complicated than just making something appear above where it actually is because of the, the bending of light through these pockets of air. When there are very specific conditions, I think this is something that's usually called uh, atmospheric ducting, like when a certain kind of duct or column of atmospheric conditions and different temperature gradients in the atmospheric gases are created,
0: this can lead to what's known as Fata Morgana. Right. These occur when there are several layers of warm and cold air that cause what is actually a combination of superior and and inferior images. Uh, The uneven inversion causes the light to refract in ultimately bizarre ways. So you can wind up with multiple segmented reflections in there. So, um, you know, it's here that we get into the, you know, the confusing images that may be interpreted as floating walls or castles in the sky or gigantic ships that are flying through the atmosphere. Sphere above the horizon, that sort of thing.
1: Now, you might wonder where the name Fata Morgana actually comes from. Like, why would an optical effect have a name like this? The name Fata Morgana actually comes from the character from Arthurian legend, usually known by her French name Morgan le Fay. In English, of course, Morgan le Fay is Morgan the Fairy. Though when I was uh, writing about this, for some reason, I, I kept thinking back to uh, our episodes of Invention where we were talking about Alice Guy Blaché and her first film, The Cabbage Fairy, La Fée Achou. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I kept thinking about Morgan, the Cabbage Fairy. But she she is not merely a Cabbage Fairy. She is a fairy, sometimes a fairy of, of helpfulness and, and medicine and sometimes a fairy of lies and destruction.
0: It always makes me think of the uh, uh, the wonderful film Excalibur, where uh, Helen Mirren plays uh, Morgana. Do you oh, remember I've never uh, seen this, it. This film? Oh, it's pretty great. It has a very shiny armor, great cast, John Borman picture. It's got Neesons in it. Oh,
1: really? Yeah. It's a John Borman. Did he do it before or after Deliverance? <laughs> That's <so> strange.
0: <laughs> uh, 81, so. Okay. I can't remember when Deliverance came out. That was a 70s film, right? I think so.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe I'll check that one out soon. Yep.
0: Yeah, uh, Deliverance was 72. Okay. Uh, well, so Morgan. Le-
1: <laughs> suddenly, I'm imagining Burt Reynolds as King Arthur. <laughs> uh, but uh, Morgan Le Fay is a character that exists uh, in multiple stages throughout the evolution of the Arthurian legendary corpus. Uh, as you probably know, there there are lots of different types of stories of Arthur and the character of Arthur and the stories about him and all the characters around him. They change a lot over the centuries as this mm-hmm. story, uh, as this story is retold and retold. And so she is usually some kind of sorceress or witch or fairy. In earlier sources, it seems she's more often a sympathetic character, a kind of helper or a healer, sometimes a sister or half-sister of King Arthur. In later stories, she's presented as more morally ambiguous or even the vindictive and deceitful villainess of the plot, as in the 15th century La in by uh, th- That one's by Thomas Mallory, Sir Thomas Mallory. Uh, And that one is the source of a lot of the Arthurian stories that people know. But La Fata Morgana is just the Italian for Morgan Le Fay or Morgan the Fairy. But you still might be wondering, wait a minute, why is this type of complex superior mirage associated with a fairy or sorceress from Arthurian literature? Well, remember that fairies are tricksters. Uh, first of all. Anne Morgan Le Fay in these later tellings of the uh, Arthur saga is known for her deceptions, but the connection appears to run even deeper than that. So I was reading about this in a 2015 article for Wired by Matt Simon that is in part, I think, a review of a book by Marina Warner called Phantasmagoria, uh, published in 2008 from Oxford University Press. And Matt Simon is writing up a, a section from this book that is about the discovery of the Fata Morgana, or at least an early documentation of the Fata Morgana with a, with a scientific point of view. So, uh, he tells the story of a Jesuit priest named Father Domenico Giardina, who lived in the 17th century on the island of Sicily. And so, uh, I'm about to describe some visions. I think there's some confusion about whether Giardina saw these visions himself or whether he was describing the visions of another person. But either way, one day in the 1640s, somebody, maybe Giardina, was gazing out across the Strait of Messina, which is the stretch of ocean between Sicily and mainland Italy. And according to Jardina's writings, uh, the, what was seen here was, quote, "...a city all floating in the air, and so measureless and so splendid, so adorned with magnificent buildings, all of which was found on a base of a luminous crystal." So, okay, that's impressive. But it didn't just remain that way. Jardina uh, claims that the city transformed itself into a garden and then into a forest. And I can't help but notice the dangerous inversion that might imply. The city, of course, is the place of order and humanity, and it transforms into the woods, which is the place where the power of nature rules and travelers become lost. And in some of the classic Arthurian stories, I think that's a place you you really see this like civilization versus the woods distinction, where the woods are just full of unaccountable magic that has power over you rather than you over
0: it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one thing I love about this is this has already hit on several different themes that we will find not only in – you know um you know tales from uh, you know elsewhere in europe but but tales from the other side of the world uh and uh, you know other uh, uh, you know other cu- other cultures seem to have possibly or in some cases possibly seen um uh, optical phenomena of this nature and had some of the same uh, interpretations mm uh so anyway
1: uh jardina's description goes on after that even after it becomes a bunch of woods, there are more transformations and more chaos. He saw what looked like armies attacking towns, and then eventually the entire scene just vanishes. And Jardina tried to explain this vision. In terms of science, rather than magic, he he blamed salts in the region, which he wrote, quote, rise up in hot weather in vapors from the sea to form clouds, which then condense in the cooler upper air to become a mobile specchio, which means a a moving polyhedral mirror. Hmm. Now, this is not correct, but as we've seen, this actually isn't very far off. It doesn't necessarily have to do with salts, but the effect probably was something like a superior mirage. Mirage of the opposing shore and things on it, or a, a Fata Morgana, even more complex, uh, sort of shifting, quickly transforming Mirage, uh, that was caused by the vertical arrangement of of gases of different temperatures and atmospheric ducting.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, one of the interesting things about this, I was reading from a, a source that I'll, I'll cite later in the uh, the episode, and they were talking about how, indeed, we we didn't really – um, begin to understand what was going on with mirages like this until the 18th and 19th century, and even even uh, say Arab scientists who uh, during the medieval period like that was they knew more about optics than anyone else in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, even they were not able to to make sense of what they were experiencing when they too experienced uh, you know superior or inferior mirages on the horizon. Yeah,
1: exactly. So so this explanation is not correct, but I think it's surprising how close he got. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so here, here's the question. Where does Morgan Le Fay come in? Right. Well, uh, here I'm going to read from from Simon's article. According to Warner, the Normans brought stories of Morgan's magic to Italy, particularly her penchant for luring sailors to an undersea palace with visions of castles in the air. Fata Morgana is particularly prevalent in southern Italy's Strait of Messina, where Father Giardina experienced his own vision. Mm. And then later, Simon writes, And long before Arthurian legend, it could have been that sightings of these phenomena gave rise to any number of, whoa, something is appearing in the sky scenes in antiquity, Warner argues. So uh, I think the the idea of the Fata Morgana is that there is some equation of this optical phenomena of seeing things far away or over the horizon, appearing up in the air above the horizon, and in some cases even uh, distorted, inverted, and stacked upon themselves, forming bizarre visions that could look like castles in the sky, cities in the sky, uh,
0: weird floating objects, ships sailing in the air or among the clouds. And and you might be tempted reading accounts of things like this to think, well, okay, you know, it's either just creative, uh, the creative mind at work, or it is uh, it is uh, you know that the, the, these people's mythology or uh, or legends that are then described. Uh, but the the fata morgana gives us uh, the opportunity to look to actual optical phenomena as a as a possible, or in some cases, like uh, it almost definite cause.
1: Yes, though I guess somebody would not be, uh, could not be blamed too too much for thinking of it as a kind of deceptive fairy magic.
0: Yeah, no, I I I think so because ultimately, like we've said before, when you when you witness something that you cannot explain, uh, a lot of times you have to go to the uh, pre-existing narratives, the pre-existing scripts uh, to figure out what it might be, and that might be aliens, it might be um, you know the the fairy folk, it might be the gods or sea monsters, etc seems like the sea in particular
1: is full of a lot of characters who want to lead you astray and get you into trouble with deceptive visions or invitations you know the sirens the uh, oh yeah uh, all those things though I guess the woods too i don't know the woods and the sea have some things in common,
0: yeah they're both wild realms and they're you know there's a plethora of uh, of mythical creatures and beings and strange lights that will lead you astray now I came across what I thought was a
1: pretty interesting hypothesis, I'm not sure uh, how well supported it is, but at least in this one case, the, the Fata Morgana Mirage has been said to not just influence supernatural legends. It may possibly explain specific catastrophic navigational blunders in maritime history, and the main possibility that has been proposed here is the iceberg collision that sank the Titanic. Oh, wow. Okay. So this hypothesis is covered in an April 2012 article for The New York Times by William J. Broad. In short, there's a British historian named Tim Moulton who was working uh, with the help of somebody named Andrew T. Young, who's an astronomer and mirage specialist at San Diego State University. And uh, w- with Young's help, Malton refined and put forward a hypothesis that could explain why the Titanic's lookouts failed to spot the iceberg in time to avoid the collision and why a nearby ship failed to respond to a distress signal. Uh, so Malton claims that the conditions of the icy water— In the North Atlantic, on the night of the sinking of the Titanic, were responsible for creating a kind of of wall-of-water illusion that could have obscured the approaching iceberg from view, and uh, Broad describes the Fata Morgana effect as follows, quote, Most people know mirages as natural phenomena caused when hot air near the Earth's surface bends light rays upward. In a desert, the effect prompts lost travelers to mistake patches of blue sky for pools of water. But another kind of mirage occurs when cold air bends light rays downward. In that case, observers can see objects and settings far over the horizon. The images often undergo quick distortions, not unlike the wavy reflections in a funhouse mirror. Okay, so this is in line with what we've been talking about. Uh, But Broad goes on to say, in an interview, Mr. Maltin said he first learned of the possibility of cold mirages when reading a 1992 British inquiry on the Titanic sinking. It suggested that the icy waters could have cooled the adjacent air and warped images that confused the Californian, a nearby ship that could have rushed to the Titanic's aid, but instead did nothing. Fascinated, Mr. Maltin, who sailed boats in his youth, dug into navigational records and found that both the Californian and the Titanic had moved into the icy Labrador current that night and had encountered conditions ideal for cold mirages. He then hunted through reams of official and unofficial testimony to see what people saw or what they thought they saw. A drama of misperceptions ensues. Mr. Moulton's book shows how mirages could have created false horizons that hid the iceberg from the Titanic's lookouts. By this theory, the intersection of dark sea and starry sky would have looked blurry, reducing the contrast with the looming iceberg and then he goes on to cite some of the testimony of the lookouts who were who were watching the horizon that night and and so they put together this idea that superior mirages could have hidden the iceberg from sight as they were approaching it by creating a kind of blur or haze along the horizon and then also that uh that a type of superior mirage caused by the the icy currents in the cold water could have interfered with the Californians' ability. Remember, that was the other ship that was nearby that did not intervene, could have interfered with its ability to correctly assess what was going on with the Titanic. And this led to a series of misunderstandings that caused them not to help.
0: Hmm. That is interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Now I don't know how much uh you know the the most relevant experts would put into this hypothesis today. I was uh trying to see if I could find criticisms of it, and I did find a series of papers in the journal Weather from twenty nineteen by Mila Zinkova. Uh the first one of the the four part series is called Titanic's Mirage Part One, The Enigma of the Arctic High and a Cold Water Tongue of the Labrador Current. Uh, I didn't have time to get into this whole series in depth, but it looks from what I can tell like the author argues that maybe the Mirage explanation is possible, but probably not the explanation that they think is most consistent with the facts. And other explanations for the haze over the water that night that would reduce visibility would include something that is more commonly known as sea smoke, which is just a kind of natural fog that forms when very cold air moves over
0: warmer water. Yeah, and that coupled with the fact that you know, Billy Zane is chasing Leonardo DiCaprio around oh, oh on the no. ship. And yeah. that's probably distracting everybody. I mean that's gonna
1: create a, a steamy fog of its own, right?
0: Yeah. Well, um yeah, I have a an interesting historic tidbit here that I think you know that flows nicely out of the Titanic example. Uh this one takes place um Well, technically, it takes place on water as well, but on frozen water. Uh, And it uh, concerns uh, something that pops up as well, the idea of like phantom islands, phantom mountains, Mm -hmm. uh, something in the distance that, you know, looks like some sort of large geographical um, occurrence. uh, But then as you get closer, it does not. And this particular tidbit concerns Crockerland. Have you ever been to Crockerland, Joe? I don't think so. I, no. For some reason, I'm thinking Betty Crockerland. <laughs> uh, well, as it turns out, nobody has been to Crockerland. And uh, and here's the story. So it's 1906, and Robert E. Perry, uh, Arctic explorer, is exploring the polar regions, and he makes an alarming sighting. A range of mountain peaks rising above the ice cap, some what looks like 400 miles uh, you know, west of Greenland's northern tip. So he names this Crockerland, and it apparently goes from there. It ends up appearing on at least one published map. And then seven years later, Arctic explorer Donald B. Macmillan, he ventures into the same region in search of Crockerland, um, you know, thinking that he is going to you know, arrive there and further study it. And he initially sees these mountains, but then they slowly vanish as he draws closer. And as it turns out, there was nothing there at all but flat, featureless ice. And uh, this is how he describes it. This is from his, uh, I believe this is from uh, uh, his autobiography. Quote, The day was exceptionally clear, not a cloud or trace of mist. If land could be seen, now was our time. Yes, there it was. It could even be seen without a glass, extending from southwest, true, to north, northeast. Our powerful glasses, however, brought out more clearly the dark background in contrast with the white, the whole resembling hills, valleys, and snow-capped peaks, to such a degree that, had we not been out on the frozen sea for 150 miles, we would have staked our lives upon its reality— Our judgment then as now is that this was a mirage or loom of the sea ice.
1: Oh, I guess the thing that we haven't discussed yet uh, but is related is that there is another phenomenon called looming that can also cause uh, illusions of this kind. uh, Seeing different things like uh, with relationship to the horizon sort of appearing Mm -hmm. out of place that works by a different mechanism.
0: Yeah. Now, uh, the next example I want to cover, though, is – Uh, Most definitely an example of the Fata Morgana. Uh, and this is actually the one that that led me uh, to, uh, to to bringing this up as a potential topic, um, because I was re- researching uh, the Shanghai Jing for our recent episode on the Shanghai Jing, and uh, I, I ran across um, a Chinese connection to the Fata Morgana in an article from 1989 by Edward H. Schaefer, published in the Journal of the American Oriental Society, titled Fuseng and Beyond the Haunted Seas to Japan. Mm. Now, Edward H. Schaeffer uh, lived 1913 through 1991. He was an American historian, sinologist, and writer, noted for his experience on the Tang Dynasty. And he was a professor of Chinese at the University of California, Berkeley, for 35 years. He also did some key English translations. In this article, however, Schaefer is looking at various examples of a class of Chinese poem about travel, particularly about This is very specific uh, about saying goodbye to honored guests as they depart on a journey. (laughs) I'm trying to think if there are any um, like English poems that come to mind uh, that have a similar theme. I don't know. Hmm. Not that I can think of. At any rate, it was a popular motif uh, at the time in China. Uh, And a popular journey, uh, specific journey for these poems during the the Tang Dynasty, which which was uh, 618 through 907, was a journey across the Sea of Japan, frequently taken by monks, diplomats and others. So this was and is the puffing sea, the bursting sea, a domain of danger for sure, but also of supernatural wonder. Now, as we've said, this can be said of, of basically any large body of water. This can be said of any seafaring civilization, right? Anywhere people meet the ocean, you find these uh, descriptions of the, the ocean as a, as a potentially deadly place, a mysterious place. And we've developed rich myths and legends to account for it, uh, you, know, any t- you know, just across cultures. Right. But Schaefer points out that there was really a lot of this talk regarding the Eastern Sea, and you'll find it in poems and in accounts of all sorts, including from very well-traveled and well-educated individuals. And he describes these sightings as being marked with, quote, greater awareness than ever before of the denizens of the oceanic world. Hmm. So what are these denizens? Denizens? Of particular note here are the shen or clam monsters of the eastern sea and uh this is where we get uh, shenjing uh which is or um or haishixianlu which uh, are terms for mirages in mandarin
1: Oh wow! So if you were talking in Mandarin about a mirage, you're saying something that literally could mean something like clam monster.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah. Like these the, these terms are, are all connected. Yeah. Wow. So while the the pre Han genesis of the term, Schaefer writes, uh, would seem to apply to real world clams, you know the type of clams you might catch and eat in, in some culinary traditions, mm-hmm. uh, it it clearly evolved into a legend. And so this is what uh, he writes. Quote, beginning as an unassuming marine invertebrate, the Shin was later imagined as a gaping pearl-producing clam, possibly to be identified with the giant clams of tropical seas. For instance, Tridacna—that's uh, the, the genus. So, these—if you've ever seen images of giant, real-world giant clams—that's uh, that's the genus. Okay. He continues, quote, finally, by early medieval times, it had become a monster lurking in submarine grottos and was sometimes endowed with the attributes of a dragon or more likely under Indian influence, a naga. So it gets this gets like just super Super, super weird, and I love it. Yeah. Uh, so, so these, uh, the shin were said, these giant clams in the ocean deep were said to exhale and belch up bubbles and froth, which the, they, could, they could then manifest into spectral castles and haunted palaces made of what Schaefer translates as a kind of plasma and later describes as being something between flesh and energy, like a kind of ectoplasm. Whoa. Quote, dreamlike, carescant with strange lights and prismatic hazes, these seemingly insubstantial confections are counterparts of the sea isle Pinlay and also of the astral places of the high gods of Taoism. Wow. All from clams, huh? Well, giant clams, giant magical clams that breathe ectoplasm and use it to craft uh, massive illusions in the sky. Yeah. Uh, so he, from here he goes on to share, uh, what is, uh, I believe his translation, one of two translations he provides, uh, of a poem by Wang Qi, uh, Rhapsody on the High House of the Clam Monsters. And it's, it's just glorious. Um, you can look up this Schaefer article. You can find it, um, uh, I think it's on JSTOR and you can access it for free and you can, you can read the full version of both poems. Uh, I just want to read the first part of the initial, I think, what's supposed to be a more accurate translation read it there in the Peking birds basin shoreless and boundless are the clam monsters high houses crag crested they do not rely on timber to knit their frames but use their own fnast to fly and float them hidden away without present sign they blaze in splendor hardly to be matched then one of them emits waves and surges there as if it would stud the sky with them forming simulacra mutating it creates porches and railings preferring to simulate the sun which melts our cares so large that it would cover a giant turtle mountain with yet another island or drip down on the shark men's houses and hanging streams then it is as if the fogs have used up their mistiness the melting clouds have gone home the moon sheds brilliance over a thousand lee vision is terminated only by the eight horizons wow yeah it's it's i I love it it's just so full of weird wonder and and again has has just stark, stark comparisons can be made to those uh, to the accounts of the Fata Morgana that you were uh, reading earlier from uh, you know the other side of the world but I love all the unexplained elements the the shark men's houses, yeah, yeah, um, I may touch on the shark men in a bit, but yeah, yeah, there's just so much wonder this feels like some sort of a just a just a weird hallucinatory vision out of uh, you know th- you might find something similar out of say the weird fiction era in, a, in American literature
1: now, I am kind of wondering how exactly some of these uh, words are translated because obviously like so the the word simulacra is in there and I understand what that means in context I, I wonder if there's actually like a term in the original that is Becoming exactly that word, or if there is some—that's somehow the gist of something.
0: Yeah, I, you know, offhand, I can't recall if Schaefer got into that. He—it's a—he—it's mostly related to these two translations that he gives, but he does get into some of the specific terminology. Mm -hmm. Um, But on top of that, Schaefer himself seemed to be, you know, pretty poetic in his own right. Um, you know, just as he's describing the text, uh, there there's some wonderful sections like he writes in this literary vision, the clammy builders are not ordinary creatures at all, but alien and anonymous natural forces. Their amorphous bodies are unstable and perhaps illusory, at least ectoplasmic or spectral. They have no gender. They dwell in the murky benthos of the sea of whales beyond the domains of the shark people. And uh, and he actually, he, he provides a second translation uh, in which he uses meter and English rhyme. Uh, and again, I just have the, the first section here, uh, but, but he does the whole thing. I don't know. Joe, do you want to read this one? Oh, sure. I could if you want. Sure. Go for it. Where giant fish fowl
1: range above the seas, in craggy houses clammy monsters wheeze, they need no Dedar to build these halls. Extruded ecors fuse as roofs and walls. Abyssal gloom eclipses them below. But, spouted up, they shed a fiery glow. When one explodes up through the tossing spume, we hope a vault of spangled stars to bloom. Instead, it seems a shining golden dome to match the sun, the god's immortal home. It makes the giant seamount seem a hill. As vast cascades cascades into the vortex spill then when the upcast spray and froth degrade and clouds beyond the far horizon fade the lunar lantern sets the sky alight and all the seven seas show clear and bright the fishy peoples shine their scales around the waves now soothed give out no further sound a palace heaves and spouting rare perfumes in majesty above the ocean looms, pierces the stubborn haze that round it lies and thrusts its mighty walls into the skies.
0: Yeah, I, I absolutely love it. Excellent. Yeah. Really uh, again, giant clam spouting, uh, you know, bubbles and froth and exoplasm up into the sky and forming an otherworldly castle or city in the sky, and then you know it it, it vanishes. And uh, and Schaefer himself points to the the connection here between these tales and the very real uh, phenomenon of Fata Morgana mirages, which are uh, still seen today on the Eastern Sea. So uh, you know these uh, these strange castles. Uh, are are still glimpsed out there you know these are this is an optical phenomenon that still occurs what, what, who are the shark people do you know something about shark men yes i looked these up these would be the uh, the Jiao rin or the the people of the flood dragon so they were a kind of merfolk mm. um, or you know or a shark person i like how he describes them as the sh- as as the shark people or fishy people if you will well, that makes them sound more
1: like the subject of that Peter Benchley novel adapted to a made-for-TV movie that we <laughs> talked about not too long ago. What was the one about, like, the shark-human hybrid?
0: Oh, what was it? It wasn't Beast. Uh, it had a similar one-word name because, you know, that you stick with what yeah. what works. They have Kim um, Cattrall in it. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. And Craig T. Nelson and a shark that I think in the book, at least, was a, was a, a Nazi-created uh, mutant intelligent shark. I'm not sure if that translated into the TV adaptation or not. Looking it up. Or if it had like big muscular arms or not? Oh, it's a mini series. It's called Creature. Creature. Yes. Okay. But I I really want to see a film about um about this giant clam um about the shin and uh you know I'm not sure that that it doesn't exist. Uh, clearly there's a lot of uh of wonderful and fantastic uh, Chinese cinema out there and um I didn't really dive in enough. So anyone out there, if you're aware of a film that features even a cameo uh, by a giant um uh, city spouting clam, uh, let me know. All right, I have another example I want to turn to, and this one takes us uh, to another continent entirely. This takes us to Africa, specifically southern Africa. Okay. And this concerns the San people. Uh, So these are indigenous peoples found chiefly in Botswana, uh, Namibia, and southeastern Angola. Uh, historically, they would have been uh, hunter-gatherer people, and they've been referred to by several different names over time, and today are apparently not instantly identifiable by any physical features, language, or culture. Um, but I was reading an article about this. This is uh, from the year 2000 by Hilmut Tribuch, uh, titled, Does Mirage-Derived Mythology Give uh, Access to Sun Rock Art? And this was published in the S- uh, Southern African Archaeological Bulletin. In it, the author contemplates a link between the traditional rock art of the San, their myths, and the superior mirages they would have observed in their environment that, again, like all these, can still be observed in those environments today. Hmm. And the author points out that, you know, uh, that that naturally this sort of mirage was seen throughout the world for thousands of years. He's the author who brings up, uh, you know, the the idea that even Arab scientists who uh, were pretty much masters of optics uh, during the medieval period, they weren't able to understand this. So it wasn't until the 18th and 19th centuries that we we really were able to, to, to fully crack what's going on when we behold a superior mirage. But, uh, you know, everyone who had access to to these mirages would have probably had some thoughts about them. And you can imagine how they might have influenced one's worldview and magical thinking. Mm -hmm. So, sun rock art, in particular, depicts, in some cases, huge flying creatures, upside down creatures, and double creatures, uh, finned land creatures, as well as floating waters. Now, there, there, there have been different ways uh, of interpreting these, uh, the author points out. So representations of mythic ideas, art for art's sake, or, and this is always interesting, altered states of consciousness or schematic visions. But the uh, tribute uh, presents a, what he refers to as a naturalistic interpretation in uh, which the observation of superior mirages are a key factor. Um, And of course, and we should drive home, uh, you know, it seems like all of these could be in play at the same time, because certainly you could have hallucinations occurring whilst looking at or remembering or or contemplating the nature of uh, things seen on the horizon. Hmm. Combine that with your own myth making uh, and just creative thinking in general. Sure. Now, as for the specific things he's referring to, uh, first of all, giant sky water snakes or rain animals above the horizon would have been linked to superior mirages that, uh, that were often observed in the lull before rainstorms. So these would have been interpreted as powerful entities responsible for rain that could then be called out to spiritually. Like these were the masters of rain, the, the gods and monsters of rain. And, uh, and they are the ones who, um, who you need favor from in order to, you know, to, to, to have a, a wet and rich environment. Mm. And then there's this really fascinating concept of the underwater where souls and the sorcerers went to become stretched. Uh, and this may be linked to glimmering inferior mirages and stretched or elongated forms. Uh, these may derive from superior mirages. And, yeah, you look at examples of this and it's like, you know, um, you know h- clearly humanoid representations and some will be of what you might take to be normal size and others are greatly elongated. Hmm. And uh yeah I'm particularly interested by this idea of the inverted world and sorcerers who try to make contact with the inverted world by uh he points out adopting an inverted arm position. Uh here's a quote from the paper. Quote, what would be more realistic than depicting inverted lions in a mirage in such an environment, the underwater of San belief It could even be that uh, trance has developed as a way to imitate the inverted world, the world where everything is the other way around. The body does not preserve the upright position anymore. Food or liquid does not enter the mouth but leaves it, as depicted in many scenes where liquid, sometimes interpreted as blood, is streaming from the nose of animals and shamans. Maybe the crossed legs of painted antelopes and trance dancers in sound rock art may simply mean that they do not walk normally, but walk in an inverted way, that is, backwards, as they should in the other world. Wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. And again, this, this connects with, uh, with some of what you were sharing earlier on, again, from the other side of the world, uh, you know, dealing with contemplations of Fata Morgana and superior and inferior mirages. Mm-hmm. So from from here, really, I mean, we don't even have to spend much time at all talking about the nature of unidentified flying objects in the sky. <laughs> right. Um, because you can see, I mean, it's all written on the wall here. I mean, the, the Fata Morgana is sometimes used to explain UFO sightings, which... Um, uh, which is just a natural direction to go into, especially when you consider modern sailing vessels uh, and, and modern you know, vehicles and objects in general. So often glinting with metallic details, you can imagine them seen above the horizon uh, as superior mirages. And, you know, if you've, you consume enough UFO material, which I think everybody has at this point, that might be one of the first places, if not the first places that your mind goes. Well, yeah. I mean, I'd imagine that superior mirages could explain all
1: kinds of uh, especially anomalous lights.
0: Yeah. And I've, I've, in particular, I've seen it linked to discussions of uh, UFO sightings in Texas and also the so-called Min Min light in the Australian outback. Mm hmm. And, uh, and I think, and I th- I think you, can, you can find plenty of other examples of this as well. There are similar lights that uh, can be found in the Middle East that have been linked to, uh, to superior mirages. So, uh, again, we're dealing with something you can find around the world. And then we find all of these interesting stories that are either directly linked to uh, superior mirages or could easily be linked to them, at least, at least in part. So it basically explains everything except Bigfoot. <laughs> I don't know. It could have, An elongated humanoid, um, you know, that, that could work.
1: Oh, Slender Man is a superior mirage.
0: Oh, you know, I was just thinking about the, the, the San Rock illustrations mm-hmm. and traditions about uh, people walking backwards. That makes me think of the, the, the Leshy again. Oh, did the Leshy walk backwards? Was that a thing? I think t- you could confuse the Leshy by walking backwards. I don't know. That's right. Or right. you could put your clothes on backwards, right? I yeah. see yeah, what you that. The upside down, the uh, the inverted world, uh, moving backwards. Um, now, as I mentioned uh, earlier on, the superior mirages uh, and the, the, the Fata Morgana, these are things that can and are photographed. They can be photographed. They are photographed. So if you do some image searches, you can find some some really excellent examples of these. I remember seeing one in particular that instantly made me think of the gigantic spaceship from Independence Day. Um, now Independence Day wasn't an actual movie you it was not a mirage but <laughs> but the, the mirages that uh, that that occur can be of that nature you know it's like there's something huge in the sky or on the horizon and it does not conform 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 to uh to to anything that would occur in the natural world that you you know of you know like you have to leap to the the unexplained if you're not aware of the sort of uh, you know the again the optical phenomena that can take place right just some shimmering hulk yeah so, on that note, we would obviously love to hear from anyone out there who has witnessed one of these you know because i I don't think i i have i don't remember ever seeing a superior mirage much much less a, a, a Fata Morgana um unless I was just you know barely noticing it certainly and that's the thing a lot of these examples that you, you you hear about they're they're hard to ignore uh so if you have experience with them please write in and let us know. Tell us all about it. Tell us about your experience with it, what was going through your mind when you looked at it. Uh, also, if you're familiar with uh, any other of the, you know, the many global traditions that either are directly linked to these optical phenomena or could easily be linked to them, uh, we'd love to hear about it. And, you know, we'll, we'll try and discuss it on an upcoming episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind Listener Mail. That's what uh, publishes Mondays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. On Wednesdays, we have the artifact. Tuesdays and Thursdays, we have core episodes. And on Fridays, we have Weird House Cinema, where we don't so much get into the science, but we talk about uh, a weird movie of note. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to
1: get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.